Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here alone in the studio, continuing our COVID-19 online learning series. And I'm going to be recording today for my Theology 442 class, History of the Reformations. And we're going to be building on our last podcast session for this class and the one before it. Uh, They have been dealing with the Catholic Reformation or Catholic Renewal or Counter-Reformation, however you might want to describe it. And we we talk about the importance of those names in the previous podcast session. Um, For some of the the background on this, I'd encourage you to go back to the first one um, that Dr. Berg and I did on this, if you're a listener who's just jumping in. Uh, at this point, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along just fine well uh, as well if you if you remain here. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to give sufficient context as, as possible. I apologize losing my voice a little bit this week after a lot of uh, recording and, and Zoom meetings uh, and allergy season, uh, which it hasn't been <clears throat> as bad as in some previous years, but it's still getting me pretty good. Uh, the, the springboard for our discussion uh, today of the Council of Trent, and not of Trent specifically. We talked about that in a a previous uh, podcast session, two sessions before this, but the concept of Trent and uh, what actually happened at the Council and then what is attributed to it later. And as the springboard for that then, uh, we'll be looking at another work by John W. O'Malley, and this is from Trent, What Happened at the Council, um, which was a 2013 monograph put out by him and published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. And we're just looking at the epilogue for that <clears throat> that book where he kind of wraps up his arguments uh, from the book in general. Uh, listeners, you won't have uh, you won't need to have read this to, to be able to follow along, I think. But what O'Malley's doing there, which is similar to what he did um, in the the section of uh, his other book that we used, um, in the last podcast session, uh, the, the conclusion, the much in a name uh, from his book on early modern Catholicism is to talk about that when we say Trent, we sometimes have to differentiate between what actually happened and was put out by the council itself and then what flowed from it and what has been attributed to it. And I think a good comparison in our own day would be uh, when you hear people talk about Vatican II. I mean, Vatican II was a council that not only influenced the Roman Catholic Church, but in uh, many ways had influences upon uh, Protestant churches, especially here in America as well, well, when it comes to liturgical things, the church year, lectionaries, and in other ways. Um, but a lot of people, when you hear Vatican II, whether you come from a Roman Catholic background or not, you think of uh, you know uh, changes in the Mass, the altar being pushed forward, uh, the use of the vernacular, um, growing up in a, a Catholic fa- Roman Catholic family, going to a Roman Catholic school uh, growing up, uh, it was sometimes associated with things like the, the nuns not wearing their habits all the time anymore. Uh, sometimes it was associated with all sorts of more liberal Catholicism, uh, maybe even used as a, a pejorative. Um, but a lot of stuff that got attributed to Vatican II wasn't actually said by Vatican II. It was people interpreting Vatican II or using Vatican II to their own purposes. And we can see some similarities then with the Council of of Trent. The Council of Trent was an extremely important council in the church, uh, probably the most important council in the church 
until Vatican II and perhaps still the most influential council of the church um, from the Middle Ages on. And uh, the Council of Trent was called for a number of reasons. There was a desire amongst uh, Roman Catholics for renewal and reform within the church that had nothing to do with Protestantism. But there was also a desire to make statements about Protestantism to delineate boundaries with Protestantism. Uh, and there also were ecumenical concerns among many uh, that wanted to seek reconciliation <clears throat> with Protestantism. The concept of reconciliation, though, uh, went out the window pretty early. And for two main reasons, uh, there was a significant portion of those President Trent who either didn't want to see reconciliation or didn't think it possible uh, to reconcile with the Protestants. They had thought that the Protestants had gone too far beyond the pale when it came to Christianity as they saw it. Um, but the Protestants themselves also uh, increasingly saw reconciliation as something that would not be possible. Um, keep in mind that a number of decades had passed by the time the council came about um, from the beginnings of Protestant reformations. And in that time, these churches had uh, developed their doctrine, their uh, ecclesiology, how they organized church governance, um, their church culture, um, church practices. And it just became pretty clear that there probably wasn't going to be <clears throat> reconciliation. Uh, the Council of Trent then did condemn a number of Protestant positions, but it did so interestingly in the past. Often councils would name the people who held those positions to condemn them, and Trent did not name them. It just named the positions and then uh, condemned them. Uh, and so it would say, you know, those who teach this or that, um, let them be anathema. And so there was an, uh, an attempt at least to be impersonal in that way. I suppose um, maybe that was a, in some ways a, a, an attempt at reproachment. Um, but it also enabled some Protestants to say, well, see, we're not explicitly condemned because that's not our position. So one of the first things that comes out of trying to keep in mind is uh, there's not going to be reconciliation with the Protestants and there'll be condemnation of Protestant positions. But on the flip side of that, another thing to keep in mind is there will be uh, an amazing amount of reconciliation within the Roman Catholic Church. It solidifies unity among Roman Catholics uh, in quite a, a number of ways. And so it pre prevents uh, future divisions from uh, coming to the fore. And it also um, unifies Roman Catholics in a, a deeper, uh, more meaningful uh, understanding of their faith and practice of their, their faith, or at least it attempts to set the, uh, the process in place for that to happen. When it comes to the council, there's three major forces that we kind of have to keep in mind who are each working sometimes for common goals, sometimes for their own goals. And these are going to be uh, the popes, and it's multiple popes because, remember, this council is called and then suspended and then called again over uh, quite a period of time. And so three popes are going <coughs> to um, reign during the council. Uh, so between the popes first and then between bishops second and then between monarchs. And interestingly, specifically, uh, of those three is the, the bishops, because the bishops were often in a somewhat precarious situation. Um, they have dual loyalties. They have loyalties to their monarch, who was often quite influential in them becoming bishops. <clears throat> and they had loyalty to the papacy, uh, which obviously 
they held a church office, uh, which was a church office that placed them under the, the Pope. And the focus on bishops then became a main point of the Council of Trent, another key development. There was a big push for bishops um, to be more pastoral bishops, for bishops to be in their diocese um, visiting uh, parishes, founding seminaries, preaching regularly, um, to get the bishops immersed back into pastoral life. And this will be one of the most important developments of the Council of Trent regarding monarchs. Well, different monarchs had different goals or different hopes. Um, some wanted to see more compromise. Perhaps the, the rulers from the Holy Roman Empire would fall in that camp. Um, some wanted to see more of a hard line. Um, Spain probably would fall in that camp. And so the amount of influence monarchs were, were able to uh, exert depended on the time, um, depended on the issue, and then the extent to which they kind of happily went home to try to enforce things uh, differed somewhat too. But for the most part, especially in Italy and Spain and in Poland, uh, these things are going to be pushed um, pretty quickly and, and pretty universally uh, when these monarchs are able to go home after the council has concluded. Uh, Trent then becomes, after it is concluded and they've had this successful council that has spanned uh, this great amount of time and had representatives um, from throughout uh, Christian Europe, um, or at least Roman Catholic Europe, there's an optimism that comes out of this and a this optimism will fuel um, the enactment of a lot of measures um, in, in, in what we might call nations today, um, but also in, in localities. Uh, a lot of developments then that will be considered tridentine or of Trent that aren't necessarily things specifically decreed or pronounced by the Council uh, of Trent. Another important development though with that third group, uh, the first one listed of popes, as that the papacy, which had been so reticent for so long to call the council for fear of losing some of their authority, um, and who had worked so hard throughout the council to maintain their authority, actually come out more powerful when it regards that authority within the church uh, than, they, than they went in, or at least managed to maintain things um, in a quite uh, impressive way um, from their point of view to avoid uh, reform or reformation of the head of the church um, by, by saying they themselves would undertake it, it would be undertaken at a different time in a different place, um, or by saying it was not the council's task to do so. The council itself had a lot of latitude when it came to uh, teaching, to doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. Um, and this was probably a, a good thing because the council was able to have to have back and forth and checks and balances and meaningful discussions uh, to set down the doctrinal, doctrinal statements that were included in the, the Council of Trent. And for the most part, these statements uh, try to be pastorally oriented um, and to avoid being too narrow while being narrow enough to delineate where delineation needs to uh, take place. I would say, though, that that pastoral notion is a, a main focus of the council to improve pastoral care, to help express to the, to the bishops and the pastors their response to, to help the laity um, grow into their Roman Catholicism. 
um, to improve preaching and participation in the sacrament. These are things that were really at the heart <coughs> of the Council of Trent. Uh, one of the big developments is that the, the, the sacramental nature of the Roman Catholic Church is going to become even more important is there's a lot of emphasis on the Eucharist, especially in response to Protestantism and emphasis on the um, presence of Christ in the Eucharist, um, but also uh, the role of the Eucharist in the life of the church. And so there will be an increase of participation in the sacrament that will take place throughout much of Roman Catholic uh, Europe um, as a result of the council. And I say as a result, not because the council successfully mandated anything that just happened, um, but because the council served as an impetus um, for the encouragement of participation and for um, reforms that led to more participation uh, as bishops went home into their diocese and as pastors carried out care um, in their parishes. Uh, a misconception about uh, the 16th century is that the 16th century is when the Roman Catholics and Protestants kind of divvied up the chancel and that the Protestants got the pulpit and the Roman Catholics got the altar. Um, that preaching was, you know, the main focus of uh, Protestantism and then the Lord's Supper, um, the main focus of Roman Catholicism. Now, to a degree, um, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is central to the Mass. There's just no denying that. But uh, we know, for instance, those of us who are Lutherans, that the Lord's Supper is hardly tangential to the life of the, the Lutheran Church. The altar plays an important role. And what came out of the Council of Trent, uh, partly because of the focus of Trent on bishops and pastors being in their diocese and parishes, was uh, an increased prominence of preaching within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, part of this is because the Council of Trent encouraged um, the education of clergy, both through the foundation of seminaries, uh, but also um, through providing increased schooling for those who maybe otherwise could not receive it. This did not mean a priest at this point had to go to seminary in order to be ordained, but the numbers of those priests who had received uh, a, a solid, more thorough education than they otherwise um, many were receiving before that, these numbers go up significantly. And this will serve a, a dual role. It will serve Catholic renewal. Um, they're able to help their people grow in their Roman Catholicism. Um, but it can also serve a counter-Reformation role. Um, they're able to counter claims or teachings of, of Protestants, um, but also maybe to help kind of uh, cut losses as, it, as people become better catechized, um, more aware, uh, better practitioners of the Roman Catholic faith, they're less likely um, to want to make a move to Protestantism. And yet I just want to drive home again, as O'Malley does throughout this reading, is that not all of this was a direct um, repercussion, a direct result of something specifically mandated or that took place at Trent. Uh, in many ways, these things came out of the implement implementation of <coughs> what was encouraged at Trent and the general, general spirit of the council. Another place we see this is in the liturgy. Um, <coughs> often when people hear about Trent or Tridentin, they think of the Tridentin Mass, they think of liturgy. But even here, much of what is often associated with Trent when it comes to liturgics is a result of things that came 
out of Trent, kind of the, the spirit of Trent. <coughs> uh, Trent itself had only uh, really discussed or dealt with the reform of the breviary, um, kind of the, the prayers of the, of, the, of the faithful, and the missal, the, the mass book. Um, but it's out of that uh, that this gives rise to further reform, to wanting to avoid um, superstition, or as uh, O'Malley puts it, redundancies and scribal errors in other documents and aspects <coughs> of liturgical life as well. And so as a result of Trent, in keeping with the spirit of it, there is going to be more liturgical uniformity that will, will develop within the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century and beyond. Similar to that will be the development of catechetical resources. Um, after the Council, a catechism of the Council of Trent is developed, um, which is grounded in the Council, but it's not pronouncements of the Council. And this catechism will be very important. Uh, it's not very polemical in focus. It, like the other, many of the other aspects I've talked about, was very pastoral. But this catechism will be very important for trying to teach the people uh, the faith in a, a more coherent and substantive way. And we can see this then as an analogous development, uh, analogous development to things that had happened in Protestantism. The development of catechisms takes place very early in Protestantism, um, but not one that's simply there to counter Protestantism, but to work at the same time <coughs> for Catholic renewal. And so that will be important uh, to keep in mind as well. He talks about other documents that will serve in a similar uh, way. I don't want to have this go too long because uh, students will have had their reading and will be taking notes on that as well. Um, but there will also be cultural influences that, that come not directly from Trent, um, but are influenced or shaped by it. O'Malley gives two that we can keep in mind. Um, the visual and plastic arts, that is, um, there is a, as part of this Catholic renewal, this impetus, uh, that's one of the feeding, one of the feeding, uh, one of the things that animates Trent. Um, I've mentioned counter-reform and Catholic renewal. Um, so the visual in the church is emphasized there, especially in contrast to the reformed. <coughs> uh, and then secondly, um, Catholic, histori Catholic historiography. The desire to root Roman Catholicism in the past, um, to, to draw it, it back to the, uh, to show its, uh, its roots in apostolic Christianity will become another cultural thing that will be drawn out of that. And so you'll have an increased focus on that culturally of making these connections to the past. O'Malley then kind of, as he wraps up, states rather succinctly, and so I'll quote it, what he's trying to do with this, this reading. He says, Trent thus took on a life of its own. It derived its authority from the growing prestige the council enjoyed. Although it included the council, it also included the post-council phenomena described above. It thus blurred line between what the council actually legislated and intended and what happened afterward. <clears throat> so he continues after that. I hope to make a little clearer the crucial distinction between Trent, in parentheses, and the closely related phenomenon the Council of Trent. And so I, I hope with this reading as it's wrapping up the semester in history of the Reformations, provide some context for students and, I, and, I've, and for listeners as well uh, for what it is to, to do historical work and to think about the past. Not everyone's gonna be a historian, um, but we all think about the past and we're all children of the past, whether we want to admit it or not, is to sometimes think about things and, and say, what actually 
was the event or the person or the statement, and then what came out of that. And for Lutherans, this can be helpful. Uh, in the Luther course, we spend a fair amount of time on this because not everything attributed to Luther was something that Luther said or did, right? But there are certain certainly things that the the words and actions of Luther have animated, some things which he might agree with, some things which he might not. Well, the same is true for, for Trent as well. But these basic developments that come out will be in a very important part of Catholic Reformation or renewal or counter-Reformation. Um, <coughs> things like bishops being in their dioceses, pastors being in their parishes, liturgical uniformity, better catechesis, better education, um, for clergy, uh, more connection to the Roman Catholic past and to the teachings of the church, a more sacramental life. Um, these are all things that will come as a result of Trent and its influence, and so good things to keep in mind. We'll pick up, we'll have a few more podcast sessions in this course. The next one will deal with confessionalization in general, uh, and then the last few will deal with my book, An Uncompromising Gospel. Uh, we go through that in class which will deal with that. It'll bring things back to a Lutheran perspective. How did things like confessionalization, confessionalization play out specifically within Lutheranism? I hope everyone is staying healthy and well. Sorry that you just get my voice today, um, but I didn't want to uh, you know, make a busy Dr. Berg um, come help me more than he already is with my classes. He's been a huge help and it's greatly appreciated. Hopefully you get something out of this. Hopefully uh, you're not going too stir crazy at home. And I hope all of us together in the freedom of the gospel will continue to let the bird fly.